Good morning, OneChurch.tv. How you guys doing this morning? Wow. Wasn't worship amazing this morning? If that didn't get your blood boiling, you've got no blood, right? So uh, just glad to have you here. If you're in the room, thank you so much for hanging out with us live. If you're watching on uh, our Ustream feed, thank you so much for hanging out with us as well. I know we have a lot of people who uh, actually uh, tune in from around the world, uh, some who are deployed, some who PCS. I got one dude, a good friend of mine, Scotty B, is watching us because he can't be at church this morning because he's working here at Fort Campbell. So hello, everybody say hello to Scotty. There you go. So we are in a week, a week five of our series entitled Your Big Moment. And what we've been doing through this entire series is we've been looking at the book of Esther. And uh, I've really, really enjoyed this. Next week, we're going to be uh, landing the plane on the book of Esther. And one of the things that we've been looking at in this series, um, Your Big Moment, is all of us, we have defining moments. There's some things that happen to us, sometimes the stuff that happens inside of us or around us that define us. And sometimes we, we can choose those defining moments, and sometimes they choose us. Sometimes they're positive, sometimes they're negative. But all of us, we can look back and we can be able to say, that moment was a pivotal moment for me. In fact, some of you, it may have been last year, it may have been on a job, it may have been a relationship. I don't know how that played out with you, but all of us, here's what I know. All of us, we long to leave a legacy. And we will leave a legacy. The question is, what type of legacy will that look like? So that's what we're asking and answering those questions as we're going through the book of Esther. Now, here's the weird thing about the book of Esther. Some of you know this. Uh, it's, a, it's a book that many times people don't preach uh, through. They really don't look at it. In fact, for 700 years in Christian history, um, people really didn't read it. John Calvin didn't write a commentary on it. Martin Luther didn't engage with it because a lot of people didn't like this book. And here's the reason. Of all the 66 books that we have in the Bible, this is the one book that never mentions God. No one prays in the book. There's no miracles that happen in the book. And because of that, it seems like God is absent. But as we've looked over the past five weeks, and we're really going to dig into this next week, is that guess what? Even when God seems absent, he's present. And we're going to even start seeing that today in our week five. And we're going to be looking at a character trait that all of us struggle with. Uh, I used to be in Boy Scouts. I'm an Eagle Scout. One of the things that we used to do is we'd go out and we uh, would go out and like We'd go canoeing, we'd hang out over the weekend, and we'd be in tents, we'd camp in. One of the things I loved doing as a kid is you would pull back the log or that, or that, that uh, rotting log or the rock, and you would kind of lift it up. And what was underneath there? Some bugs, some grubs, some nasty stuff. It's like ew, some fungus. It's fungi for the lay people, just like, you know. All right? But it was one of those things, and that's what we're going to be doing today when it comes to you and me. We're going to be peeling back that stuff that really we don't really engage with. It's kind of dark, and all of us have this thing, this nasty trait that we're going to be looking at that really finds itself in a character, wrapped up in a character in the book of Esther. So here is where we're going to be. If this is your first time with us, let me bring you up to speed. The book of Esther has five primary characters. 
The first character is a guy by the name of King Xerxes. King Xerxes, he is the most powerful person who lived at that time, and he is the king of the Persian Empire. If you've seen the movie 300, uh, he's the guy who's portrayed in there uh, who comes against the Spartans. He was a real character uh, because when we read God's word, it's historical. It's so cool. So um, King Xerxes lived about 483 B.C., about, about 500 years before Jesus was born, and um, he had a queen by the name of Vashti. She's on the top right, and Queen Vashti and King Xerxes had a, a, a spat, and Xerxes got rid of Vashti. And then he, 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 you know, he's like, I'm kind of lonely, so I think I want to be able to find another wife. So that's what he did. He had a beauty pageant, and uh, all of these women kind of applied, and Esther, who's on the bottom right, she's a Jewish orphan, um, and she actually got the job. She becomes queen because she wins the beauty pageant. So Esther, just to let you know, Esther and her cousin Mordecai, who's on the bottom left, um, uh, Mordecai's her cousin, but also kind of her adoptive dad because Esther lost her children at a very young age. They were Jews living in the Persian Empire, and they were Jews who could have went back home to Israel and Jerusalem but chose not to go, and they just kind of stayed. And the guy that we really talked about last week, Mordecai, we were introduced also to the bad guy. And he's the middle person on that screen. His name is Haman. His name is Haman. Haman is Persian, and he is the prime minister. He's kind of the VP right underneath Xerxes. And we looked at Haman last week. And this character trait that all of us struggle with today, it's some of the reason why um, people, they really don't like you, and it's some of the reason why you have conflicts in your relationship. If you're married, how many of y'all are married in here? Let me see your hands. It's the reason why you fight. Let's just be honest. Now, some of you are like, Pastor, we don't fight. (laughs) You also don't tell the truth either. Okay? (laughs) Because I fight. And mainly, I always lose. So, uh, and if you're a guy, you're probably the same way. But it's this conflict that happens in our relationships. And here is the character trait that Haman really personifies. It's selfishness. It's selfishness. You see, all of us in here, we're selfish. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about selfishness. Now, before I dig into this, and we're going to read a lot of scripture today, I'm just going to warn you, buckle up. Um, I just want to say, as we're talking about selfish people, all of us in here, you already have somebody in your mind, right? In fact, the person you have in your mind may be the person that you came with today, right? It's your spouse, it may be your mom, it may be your teenager, it may be whatever. All of us have somebody in our mind that we're going to want to apply the sermon to. And that's where I want you to hit the pause button. Because... I think the, the, the natural drift for us is to be able to say, you know what, I wish, my per- I wish my wife was here to hear this. I wish my husband was here to hear this. I wish my, my sister was here to hear this or my brother. I want you to hear this like God is speaking to you. And let's take everybody else off the table. Because here's what I know about you. That the thing that you dislike in other people, selfishness, is the very thing that you struggle with. Because all of us, we, can, we, we become self-promoting, and we start uh, focusing on ourselves, and we start voting, uh, uh, focusing on our inalienable rights, and it's all about us. And what we're going to be digging into today is this selfishness. Now, Merriam-Webster uh, actually defines selfishness this way. It's an adjective, and it describes a person that lacks consideration 
for others. That they are concerned chiefly with who? One's own personal profit or pleasure. Now again, when you think about this, it's going to be easy to be able to stick that name of the person that maybe you struggle with in this. But the thing I want you to ask the question today is how selfish am I? How selfish am I? And I know that's a very uncomfortable question for you and I to ask ourselves, but we're going to be looking at Haman's story and we're going to be asking the question, why is he so selfish? And then by doing so, we're going to be figuring out how come you and I are so selfish? So <laughs> Haman is the poster boy for selfish, selfishness and narcissism. So here's what's at stake. And here's the reason why we're talking about this. And here's our big idea today. Our big idea is simply this, that a life devoted to self ultimately leaves you alone. A life devoted to who? Self ultimately leads you alone. Let's say that together. A life ultimately leads you alone. Selfishness is all about, you know what? Well, if I don't stand up for me, then who's going to stand up for me? If I don't say something, then who's going to say something for me? If I don't step up for me, then I'm going to get left out. Selfishness is all about that if I don't assert my rights, if I don't, in this relationship, if I don't stand up for myself at work, if I don't get what I want, then I'm not going to get what I deserve. If I don't get what I'm entitled to, if I don't get any of that, then I'm going to get left out. And here's what I know. That all of us, we see this in other people, and none of us want to hang out with selfish people. None of us want to hang out with people who are proudful, boastful, arrogant people. We don't want to be around people who are devoted to themselves. But here's the fact. What you and I resist in other people, we're drawn to to ourselves. What you and I resist with other people, strangely, I think because of sin, we're drawn to in ourselves. Because you don't like, I don't like it when he's selfish. You may think, I don't like it when she's selfish. But when it comes to us, it's just a little bit different, isn't it? Because then it's about our rights and our privileges. But here's what's at stake. That a life devoted to self ultimately will lead you alone. Haman shows us that. Because of Haman... The Jews are threatened people. They're slated to be exterminated, we looked at last week. And the reason is is that Haman, uh, this guy named Haman, who's a Persian, and a guy by the name of Mordecai, who's a Jew, there's kind of a battling feud between these people groups. And if you tuned in with us last Sunday, by the way, who tuned in last Sunday and heard the message in worship? Cool, guys. We couldn't meet here because the school system said, you can't meet here, right? So we actually recorded it beforehand, and it was a little weird preaching to an empty room. Somebody once said, that was a really short message that you preached on the internet. It's because there was none of y'all was here. So buckle up. We're going to be here for three hours. Some of y'all are like, I got to go. Cracker Barrel's calling. Anyway, here's the thing. When it comes to Haman, Haman and Mordecai, they had this blood feud. And again, if you didn't hear the sermon last week, you need to tune into it. But also, Haman had a problem with Mordecai the Jew because Mordecai wouldn't give honor to Haman. That when Haman actually came into a room, he wanted Mordecai to stand up. He wanted kind of Mordecai to tremble, and he didn't do that. And he got so angry, he said, you know what? I'm going to kill Mordecai, and I'm going to kill everybody like Mordecai. So he goes to his boss, King Xerxes, and he signs into law that on March the 7th, all of the Jews would be killed and massacred. Now, here's the thing. Xerxes and Haman have kind of worked out this plan, but here's 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 the detail that nobody knows about. Esther, his own queen 
is a Jew, and she's not told anybody. Her, her own husband, King Xerxes, doesn't know that she's a Jew. And that's what we've been discovering with the tension in the story. So Mordecai and Haman are kind of going at it. And this is what we're going to dive into in Esther chapter 5, verse 9. Haman was a happy man when he left the banquet. Why is he happy? Because he knows he's won against Mordecai. He's going to kill him and he's going to kill all of his people. But when he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, not standing up or trembling nervously before him, Haman gets what? Furious. And maybe you've had that situation before. You don't think you're getting the respect from your spouse. Maybe you don't feel like you're getting the respect that you deserve from your children. You're not getting the respect that you deserve on your job. In, in, in that coworker or that person who respects you and you've got the stripes three up, three down, and you're like, you need to respect me. And I tell you, if you're feeling that way, I mean, what does that do? What does that make you when you don't feel like you're, you're, you're being disrespected? What, how does that make you feel? If you're honest with yourself, it rattles you, doesn't it? And it bothers you. And that's the thing that Haman is struggling with right here. And it makes him furious. Now, here's the cool thing about Christianity. And again, if you're new to Christianity, and maybe uh, Jesus and the Bible and the church are kind of a new thing to you, let me just kind of pull back the veil a little bit and let you uh, in on a little secret. Is that once you become a Christian, you know what? Your emotions don't necessarily change. A lot of things changes when you become a Christian. But if you were ticked before you were a Christian, guess what's probably going to happen when you, after you become a Christian? You're going to get ticked, right? And when you feel disrespected... You know, it's still going to bother you. But here's the difference that Jesus makes, is that you and I get to see that through another lens, that just because we feel disrespected, that we don't have to act on that and we don't have to treat people poorly. I wish Christians would get that. So many times Christians, they have this idea that because somebody treats them poorly, that gives them the opportunity to treat somebody else poorly as well. And the Bible never does give us that green light. But here's the thing, we're to treat other people the way that you and I would want to be treated. And that's what it was. It, it, your emotions are still there, you're still frustrated, you feel, still feel disrespected. But you don't have to get back at them. But look at what this selfish dude does. Look at what Haman does. Verse 10. However, he restrained himself and he went home. Remember, Haman's already won. He's thinking he's already won. So he gets home and here's what he does. He gets together all of his buddies and he's thinking, I'm, I'm going to start bragging. Listen to what he says. Haman gathered together his friends and his wife, Zeresh, poor woman, and boasted to them about his, what? Great wealth and his many children. He probably had a chariot with a bumper sticker that says, my child has straight A's and is an otter student at whatever, right? Have you ever been around people who are just boastful? I mean, people, they just talk about themselves all the time. Me, 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 I, 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 myself. Have you seen the wonders of everything that I have done? Have you seen my degrees? Have you seen all of this stuff? And they just go on and on and on and on and just like, ah, right? I mean, what do you want to do with people? Brian Regan, one of my favorite comedians, he calls people, he calls people like that the me monster. And that's exactly what they are. It's all about me, 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 my, my, my. And what do you want to do with people like that? I'll tell you what you want to do. You want to go, right? Or you want to go, let me get away from this person. You do. But here's the thing. Even though I don't like that in other people, and I don't like that trait, selfishness is something that I struggle with. And entitlement and selfishness and pride is probably something that you struggle with as well. 
Look at what he says in verse 11. He bragged about the honors of the, that the king had given him and how he had been promoted over all the other officials and nobles. I mean, he's saying, man, we've started on, we all started on the same playing field, but I have risen above. I have pulled ahead. And the, King Xerxes, he's acknowledged the genius within me. He's, I mean, he's just that kind of a guy. Keep on going. Then Haman added, and that's not all. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to the banquet he's prepared for us. Now, guess who got invited to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Guess who got a personal invitation to the Oval Office? Guess who has been invited to a private audience with the Pope? It's Haman. He's name-dropping, right? Verse 12. And she has invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. And then he added, he's just eating up with jealousy and envy. He's, he added this. But this is all worthless and nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting at the palace gate. So Haman's wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends suggested, by the way, be careful who you hang out with because the people you hang out with will impact your life. It will impact your legacy. And you will become like the people you hang out with. If you hang out with people who don't hold to your values and morals, guess what's going to happen eventually to you? You're going to drift towards them. And so his wife, Zeresh, and all of these other folks, they give him an idea that we're going to see proves fatalistic here. It says this, set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall, and in the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. I mean, he's going to die, right? We've already signed in the law, but let's really make sure he's dead, right? Let's make it public. When this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king, and this pleased Haman, and he ordered the pole set up. Now, next verse is Esther 6.1. Now, before we go there, let me tell you, it's so cool. And this is one of those things where up to this point, we've not seen God's name on the page and on the scripture, but this is where we're going to see God is working behind the scenes, that God is present even though he seems absent. And before I read Esther 6.1, I want to read to you another verse. It's from Proverbs. It's a great verse I love. Proverbs 21.1 says this, Just as water is turned into irrigation ditches, so the Lord directs the king's thoughts. He moves them wherever he wishes. Now, with that in your mind, let's read Esther 6.1. That night, the king had trouble sleeping. Hmm. Wonder who could have caused that. It wasn't an upset stomach. It wasn't indigestion. I believe it was God. That God is working behind the scenes. And if he can control the king's thoughts, he can wake a, a king up from his slumber. That night the king had trouble sleeping, so he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. I want to read about myself. Okay. In those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Big Thana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. Now, we looked at this a little bit last week. This actually happened five years before this, but Mordecai is hanging out by the city gate, and he overhears a conspiracy. He overhears a plot to kill King Xerxes, verse 2. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. And by the way, many people plotted to assassinate him. He was not a popular king. And eventually, he dies by assassination. And says this. This is what the king asked. What reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this, the king asked. 
The king can't remember. Uh, what was that guy's name again? Uh, did we ever give him a car? Did we give him a Corvette? I mean, did, did, did we like give him a pay raise? Did, did we buy him and his wife dinner out? Uh, did we uh, send them and his wife maybe to Hawaii? Uh, what, what, did we do something like that? Because if we did, we probably should do that. And look at what it says. His attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. Look at the next word. <laughs> because out of the corner of his eye, King Xerxes sees somebody. Who is that in the outer court? The king inquired. As it, what? That's God behind the scenes, people. You see, some of you, you're struggling right now because you can't see God. He's not showing up in huge and miraculous ways. Ta-da! In your life. You're just kind of having ordinary days. And you're like, where is God? Let me tell you, God works in your ordinary. He does. Some of the most miraculous things will happen in your life will happen on an ordinary day. Here, as it just happened... Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale who? Mordecai on the pole that he had prepared. Do you see the irony developing? This is so cool, right? So the attendants replied to the king, it's Haman. He's out in the outer court. Well, bring him in, the king said. So Haman came in and the king said, what should I do, Haman, to honor a man who truly pleases me? Now, here's the problem with selfishness and pride. Look at where it takes Haman. Look at where he goes mentally. Haman thought to himself. He said, self, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? I'm his number one guy. So Haman doesn't know what's really going on. So he's like, hey, he's talking about me. So guess what I get to do? I get to set up my own parade. I get to set up my own promotion. The king is asking me to set up my raise, and I'm going to give it my Christmas bonus. I get to set it, right? So Haman responds, you want to know what you should do, king, to a person who you truly want to honor? (laughs) Oh, my gosh, right? I will tell you what you should do, and Haman just rolls it out. Look what he says. So he replies, if the king wishes to honor someone, hint, hint, thank you, I'll take it. He should bring out one of the king's own royal robes as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Now, this is a different world. It's a different culture. So let me kind of contextualize this. This is like, in today's terms, Haman is saying, I want to sleep in the Lincoln bedroom in the White House. That's what I want. Not just that. I want a trip... I want to fly somewhere, and I want to be on Air Force One. In fact, for an entire day, I want to be the most powerful person in the world. I want a whole day by myself in the Oval Office. I'm thinking about redecorating. And, you know, y'all can play hell to the chief. Bum, 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 bum. Hell to Haman. Thank you very much. He wants all that stuff. He wants all the trappings because he feels entitled. He's prideful. He's selfish. Look what it says. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. And let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor. By the way, you're talking about me. Thank you. I accept on behalf of the academy. I wish to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. This is Air Force One. 
I want to be the star on parade. Let have the official shout out as they go. This is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. The king responds, excellent, excellent. Quick, take the robes of my horse and do just as you have said. <laughs> but that's not where the, the verse ends. In fact, let me read it again. That isn't even the whole verse. Excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes of my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the gate of the palace, leave out nothing you have suggested. <laughs> By the way, this isn't about you, Haman. This is about your enemy. This is about Mordecai. You're going to do that for Mordecai. You know that guy that you hate at the office? Do it for him. You know that that neighbor that you can't stand, that you're praying that there will be a for sale sign in that person's yard? Do it for that person. You know that relative that you don't like, that you can't stand seeing at Christmas? Do it for them. You know that person that you lent that money out who just never has paid it back to you? Do it. Do it for them. The king tells Haman, that's what you need to do. So verse 11 of Esther 6. So Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed him on the king's own horse, Air Force One, and led him through the city square shouting, this is what the king does for someone whom he wishes to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate. By the way, notice this doesn't change the character of Mordecai. That's very, very important. Because some people, when they get praise, their head gets a little big. You know what I'm saying? Any, any wise want to attest to any of that? Now, don't, don't raise your hands. <laughs> Marriage counseling is available later. All right. Because here's the thing. It doesn't change Mordecai, but what happens to Haman? Haman hurries home dejected and completely what? What's that word? Humiliated. That's the power of humility. You see, the thing about being humiliated is that if you start with humility, when you're humiliated, you got, really don't, don't have that far to go, do you? You see, when you're humble and you get humiliated, it's just, you're right there. But if you think you're all that and your stuff don't stink, what happens? When you're humiliated, that's a far drop, isn't it? And here's the thing. If you start with humility, you've got nowhere left to fall. If you start with pride, you've got a long way down. The prouder you are, the harder they fall. But if you adopt a humble attitude toward life, even when you get knocked off your horse, you don't really have that far to fall because it's one of those small little tiny horses. You know what I'm saying? What's it called? Shetland Pony. Thank you very much. All right? But if you're on a high horse, you're on a Clydesdale, <laughs> when you fall, something get broke. Because all of us, we're attracted to people who are humble. We're attracted to people who are kind and who have humility. But that very thing, we uncover in ourselves and all of us, we become selfish. Look what happened to this. That's what happens to Haman. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends what had happened, remember, he had just had the previous conversation that night. Look at how amazing I am, right? His wise advisors, advisors and his wife said, Since Mordecai, the man who humiliated you, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. This will be fatal if you continue opposing him. By the way, that's his wife giving the husband some advice. Let me hit you for a sec. Men. No, no, let's take the men out of it. Women. 
if your husbands listened to you more often, they would keep themselves out of trouble, wouldn't they? Somebody agree with me? Yes, sir. That's exactly. Did you hear that, guys? Let me tell you, God has placed that woman in your life so that you can listen to her. This is free. It's not my notes. But the very word that's described about a wife being a helper to her husband is the very same word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit and how he helps and comforts us. That's something. All right, let's keep on going. All right, so chapter 14, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 14 says, While they were still talking, the king's units arrived. You're not going to put it in yourself? All right, and quickly took Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. Now, here's the thing. Esther has called a banquet in, for King Xerxes and Haman. All right? And Esther has not revealed her identity yet. Remember, both Esther and Mordecai are Jewish, and Xerxes and Haman are Persians, Persians and nobody knows. Nobody knows that Esther is actually Jewish. So Esther's getting ready to connect the dots. This, she's laying a trap for Haman, and it's going to be really cool. All right. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and while they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, Tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? And I will give it to you even if it's half the kingdom. This guy is in love. He's got a love Jones going on. he got some Barry White playing in the background. Right? He's going, come on, baby. Tell me what you want. All right. All right. Verse 3. Queen Esther replied, listen, listen to her humility. If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request. Esther's being transformed in this moment. She continues, I ask that my life and the lives of my people would be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet. For that would be a too trivial matter to bother the king. <laughs> this is interesting. Who would do such a thing? Uh, who would do such a thing? The king responds. Who would be so pre presumptuous to touch you? King Xerxes said. Esther replied, "The wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy." Finally, she reveals her identity. She reveals who she really is, and she connects the dots, and the moment of truth has arrived. And look what Haman does. Haman grew what? Pale with fright. This is one of those, what you talking about, Willis? Anybody remember that show? If you are 20 and under, nobody knows what I'm talking about, all right? How many of y'all, different strokes, all right? They love me some Gary Coleman, right? I'm just saying, right? This is, Haman's like, oh, no, she did, Right? And, and he, that's what he's thinking. He grows pale but with fright before the king and the queen. And the king, by the way, who's prone to rages, we've seen that, jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. So he's thinking, what am I going to do? And that leaves Esther and Haman alone in the room. Mm -hmm. Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king intended to do what? Kill him. Now, this was a monarchy. Again, this was a different culture, but no one was allowed to be by themselves with the queen unless you were the king. 
And let me just stop here and say, men, if you're married, one of the best boundaries that you can do is to not be alone with another woman if she's not your wife. That's a guardrail you can set up. It is, and it's true. Because here's the thing. Here's what we're getting ready to see. Haman doesn't do anything. Haman doesn't do anything to Esther or anything like that. But we're going to see because of other character flaws that Haman has had. Because remember, that what happens in your little moments in your character is going to flood over into your big moments. And Haman's getting ready to have a really big moment. <laughs> in despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining just as the king was returning from the palace garden. So the king comes in, and Haman's like all over Esther going, oh, please forgive me. And the king starts buckling up a little bit. Look at what happens. The king exclaimed, will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his what? There you go. I mean, the king, the bag went over the head. And look at what happens in verses 9 and 10. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole. By the way, let me give you some information, king. Haman set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard, and he intended to use it to impale Mordecai, but you know, apparently it's available now. <laughs> By the way, you remember Mordecai? He's the one who saved you from assassination. You, you got up the night before and you couldn't, you remember that? Couldn't sleep? Then impale Haman on it, King Xerxes said. So they impaled Haman on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Now stop. How do you feel about Haman right now? Is anybody in here just, just rooting for Haman? Anybody in here going, man, that's a great guy. I want to be friends with that dude. Anyone? No one. I mean, is anybody going, man, I just, I'm cheering for Haman, and I just, I like Haman. Is anybody? You see, let me tell you, no one is. And let me tell you the reason why. It's hard to love people like that. People like that disgust us, who are selfish and prideful, narcissistic. It's hard to love that guy. No one's rooting for Haman. You know who we're rooting for? We're rooting for Esther. Finally, she's done something right. We're rooting for Mordecai. Heck, we're even rooting for King Xerxes, the most powerful person in the world at that moment. Why? Because of selfishness. We're reacting against narcissism because of pride. That's why. And here's the thing. All of us struggle with selfishness. All of us do. I struggle with being selfish. And if I'm not careful, I am just going to naturally fall into, well, I'm entitled to that. And the pastor is going to get his special little pastoral sign. I don't know when God willing, God's going to give us a building one day. I am never going to have the pastor's parking spot. Right? Not going to happen. That's pride and it's entitlement. And if we do not guard against it, if I don't guard against it, here's the sad fact. That a life devoted to self will leave you alone. It will leave you. It will, one is the loneliest number. All of us struggle with selfishness. And if you're going to live your life climbing over the backs of other people, if you're going to live your life like everybody's got to wait on you and they got to jump so high and everything, if you got to live your life where it's all about you and you getting your head and you getting your promotions and you getting your job and that I have come to be served, not to serve other people, guess how you're going to die? Alone. 
And yeah, you may have some people around you, but their hearts won't really be with you. And they're going to resent you because your actions today will impact a generation tomorrow. A life devoted to self will ultimately leave you alone, which leads to the question, how selfish are you? How selfish am I? You know, the good news about becoming a Christ follower and a Christian is that the, the, the Christian journey started with a guy, Jesus, who died to himself. Who died to himself and died for you. And if you're a Christian, the mark of your maturity as a Christ follower is the fact that you are dying to yourself. That you're saying no to your rights. That you're saying no to your privileges and you put other people before yourself. That's Christian maturity. You know, in some of those weird passages in the New Testament, I believe it's in Galatians 2.20, where Paul says that I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. You know, what, what he's saying is that you've got to die to yourself. But let me tell you, you and I are into self. I'm into self, aren't I? And you're into yourself too, Right? Because you like self-esteem and self-promotion, right? You like self-encouragement and self-empowerment. Some of you even subscribe to the magazine self, right? In fact, some of you, you do this, right? Right? Because we're into self. Let me tell you, God is not into self. God calls self to die. Self. If you live that way, we'll leave you alone. And that, the thing that, that draws us and that makes us even want to just be so attracted to Christ. Some of you, you're here and you're not even a Christian. You don't even believe this Bible stuff. But the, the reason why you're here this morning is that there's something about Jesus Christ that you just can't dismiss. When you read his teachings and you observe his life, it's almost too good to be true. But what you're attracted to in Jesus is humility. It's humbleness. What I am attracted to to other people is humility. And the people that I most admire are people who are humble. They're never the proud. We live in an age where people are all go around saying, you know what, I'm, I'm a mature Christian. I'm such a mature Christian. I know all, I'm just such a mature Christian. Let me tell you what that is. That's called pride. If you live a life like that, you will ultimately, it's going to leave you alone. A mature Christian dies to himself, dies to herself. Because inside that mature Christian it's the Holy Spirit living inside of you. It's the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's God himself. Remember the birth of Jesus? Where was he born? Was he born in a palace? No, he was born in a stable. Remember the death of Jesus? Was he born in, in, in uh, excuse me, was he, did he pass away in this huge throngs of people who were loving on him? And did he have this huge mausoleum erected in his honor? No, they put him in a borrowed tomb. I like what Philippians 2 says. They have the same attitude in the spirit that's in Christ Jesus. That's exactly right. Jesus said it himself. I came not to be served, but to serve. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's why it resonates with you. It's the reason why it resonates with people who aren't even Christians. Because they think, if that really is true, oh my gosh. That's a game changer. It's a game changer. 
So if you really want to grow in your Christian life, it's not about how much you know. In fact, Paul wrote it this way in 1 Corinthians 8. One, yes, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So how selfish am I? Well, interestingly enough, as we close, there's a test that I want you to take. All right? So if you have this, write it down. Um, and it's also in you version, but it's Dr. Drew's narcissism test. By the way, that's at www.zeroeb.com. Now, Dr. Drew, anybody ever watch MTV when it was good? All right, thank you. Um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, MTV used to play like music television. It was crazy, I know. Uh, but there was this guy, Dr. Drew, Dr. Drew Pinsky. And that's who this is. He's not a Christian, and this test is not a Christian test. So there's going to be some flaws in here, and don't take it as thus saith the Lord type of thing. And there's some language in there, but I would encourage you to take this test. And one of the things, it's a 40-question test, and basically he created this test for people in Hollywood just to see how self-absorbed they are. And guess what? Uh, People in Hollywood scored pretty high. How will you score? It's kind of fun, and we can kind of pick fun at it, but hopefully for some of you, it's going to set off some alarm bells. I'd encourage you to take this test. But how, how can we become less probable and more humble? Let me give you three things, I'm gonna, and then I'm going to give you a challenge, and then we're going to go. Three things that you can become more humble. The first one is this. You need to listen more. Now, as a pastor, I talk a lot. Too much. I need to listen more. Probably you do as well. In fact, somebody texted me in the first service while I was preaching. Um, mama, my mama said that he gave us, uh, that God gave us two ears and, right, so we should listen twice as much as we speak. <laughs> I guess we have the same mom. And there's so many people who just talk, 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 talk. And even while other people are speaking, what are they doing? They ain't listening. They're going, Oh, well, this is what I'm going to say here. And once they stop and take a breath, then I'm going to jump in. <laughs> blah, blah, be me, my, my, I, 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 I. It's like a chatty Cathy doll, right? Ah! Oh, my gosh. I know some of you are going, the pastor just freaked out. I don't know what happened. Listen more. Listen more. And if you listen more, guess what that's going to lead to? You're going to empathize with them. Now, some of you, what does that mean? Empathize is simply having the ability to identify with somebody else's emotions. Let me say it another way. It's putting yourself in their shoes. And for some of you, man, that's a, that's a big deal. That when you come across this way, how does that make your wife feel? Put yourself in her shoes. See, that's what Haman didn't do. Haman didn't think, you know what? How is Mordecai going to feel when I impale him and kill all of his relatives? When I impale him on a 75-foot pole? How how is he going to feel? He didn't ask that question, but guess what? He got to know how it felt, didn't he? And then lastly, imagine what the right thing to do is and just do it. Imagine what the right thing to do is and just do it. Ask the question, what would a good person do in a situation like this? And then go out and do it. So we used to wear these bracelets when I was in high school, and it was called WWJD. Anybody remember those? And we, you ask the question, what would Jesus do in my situation? That's a great question that you can ask. How would Jesus react in this circumstance? How, how would a compassionate person, what would a compassionate person do? What would a responsible person do? What would a selfless person do? What would a kind and patient person do? And whatever they would do, then go and do it. Here's your homework. You're going to love this homework. I'm going to ask everybody in here to watch a movie. How many of y'all like watching movies? All right. 
How many of y'all got Netflix? Let me see your hands. All right, some of y'all, most of y'all, all right? So here's what I'm going to do. If you have Netflix, you can go into Netflix and you can type in the word Esther. And if you do that, it's going to pull up a movie. And what I want you to do before next week is I want you to watch a movie on Esther's life. Now, here's the thing. I've not seen the last one, Esther, but I've seen the one right before that, One Night with the King. And you can get it off of YouTube. It's free. Type in One Night with the King and full movie will pop up. Click on that one. It's about an hour and a half long. And it is a great movie. Very biblically accurate. I want you to watch that movie before you come back to church next Sunday. And then next Sunday, we're going to close it all out. We're going to put the bow on it, and we're really going to find God in the book of Esther. But as we close, I just want to just encourage you to remember this whole all of us struggle with selfishness and a life devoted to self will lead where? Alone. Let me close with this story. It's a story by the guy that's on the screen. His name is Alfred Nobel. Anybody ever heard of Nobel? What do you think I'm going to talk about? He's the inventor of the all right, Nobel Prize. Exactly right. And some of you, the Nobel Peace Prize. That's interesting that we remember him as the inventor of the Nobel Peace Prize because that's what he's known for. That's his legacy. And that's how we remember this man, Alfred Nobel, over 100 years after his death. But did you know that actually that's not what really what his life was about? Alfred Nobel wasn't known for peace. He was known for war. He was a munitions manufacturer. Alfred Nobel was the inventor, and you got it, of dynamite. He became a billionaire based upon his development of weapons and explosives and munitions. He was from Sweden, and he became a global supplier of explosives that killed millions of people. By all accounts, Alfred Nobel was not a kind man. He was a very selfish man. And this will tell you a little bit about his character. His brother worked for him, and when they were working and experimenting on some nitroglycerin and dynamite, an explosion erupted, and it killed five people, including his brother. But that didn't stop Alfred. He just kept on making war. He kept on making munitions. And when, and he, when he hit his 50s, he became extremely wealthy. In 1888, Alfred and his brother Ludwig was in France, and Ludwig died. Mistakenly, a French newspaper thought that Alfred had died. So the French paper published his obituary, and Alfred was in this strange position of reading his own obituary. Alfred Nobel actually got to see what other people had to say about him, and it wasn't very nice, I'm going to warn you. One French newspaper in Cannes said this, The merchant of death is dead. Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. That made an impact on him. So much so that seven years after his obituary was run, he devoted 94% of his billion-dollar estate establishing five prizes. And it was a huge, massive Donation, even in today's standards. But one of those five prizes is the Nobel Peace Prize. And what's so interesting about that is after he donated 94% of his state to these prizes, just a few years later, guess what he did? He died. 
And his legacy today isn't remembered as the merchant of death. That he is a promoter of peace. What does that tell you and me? That it's not too late. You can change your legacy. You can change it. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past, that when Jesus comes into your heart and your life, he can remake you new. It's not too late. That you can experience new life. And as we look back over 100 years later, we remember this man as a promoter of peace.